Let me read our passage from Philippians 1, uh, and this is verses 12 through 18. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but you are, of course, free to use whatever version you have at home. Lots of good translations of Scripture. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. I'm much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, as we continue in our series in the book of Philippians, we remember that this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church, the first European church, the church that Paul himself planted probably about 10 years prior to this letter. And he writes about joy. He is in prison writing to Christians, who many of them are suffering as well, and he is writing about joy in difficult circumstances, something that we all need to be thinking about these days. In Psalm 23, I was reading um, in the Psalms this week, and in Psalm 23, let me read verses five, uh, 4 and 5. This is a familiar psalm to you, but I wonder if you ever caught this meaning in it. I hadn't, so this is really exciting for me, but I, I, maybe you, you have. In Psalm 23, verses 4 and 5, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is what Tim Keller notices about this, and that really struck me this week. He says, God has a celebration meal with us, not after we finally get out of the dark valley, but in the middle of it, in the presence of our enemies. He wants us to rejoice in Him in the midst of our troubles. This is what Paul is writing about in Philippians. This is what we are learning in the midst of this pandemic, that even in the midst of, in the middle of our crisis, even in the midst of our troubles, we are to rejoice that God sets the table for us in the presence of our enemies, in the midst of the valley. And so we can learn to rejoice and be content even in very difficult circumstances. Now, Paul, particularly in our passage, rejoices that Christ is proclaimed even though he is imprisoned and he is suffering. Paul's concern is not for his own well-being, but for the progress of the gospel of Christ. That's why, in part, why he is rejoicing that the gospel of Christ is still advancing, is still progressing, even though he is in chains. Paul can rejoice because he sees his life in a very different way from most people. And so we too can rejoice if we see our life 
in the way that Paul sees his life, in the way that every Christian should see his life. We need to see our life as ordered by Christ, as centered on Christ, and as patterned after Christ. This is our outline. The Christian life is ordered by Christ. That's number one. Number two, it's centered on Christ. And number three, it's patterned after Christ. So let's work through it. And I think every point, and we see it right here in our text, every point gives us hope and allows us to rejoice in the midst of our particular suffering, even as Paul was able to rejoice in prison. A Christ-ordered life. The believers at Philippi were concerned and worried about Paul. With Paul in prison, it was natural for them to think and worry about the spread of the gospel in Europe. He was the premier evangelist of the time. He planted most churches probably in Europe at that time. He was the one who was able to proclaim Christ with such power that conversions happened regularly in great numbers in various cities in the Roman world. So what is going to happen to the spread of the gospel when now that he is in prison? He's awaiting sentence and he's been in prison for two years at this point. His appearance before Caesar is being delayed. And even when it happens, they don't know that he will be acquitted. He might be sentenced to death or, or to hard labor. We, we don't know. And they didn't know. And so they're wondering what's going to happen to the gospel in Europe. They're also worried about him personally. He's in prison. He's under house arrest at this time, chained always to a Roman guard that he wouldn't escape. He has to provide for his own needs. People, he needs to rely on his friends to bring food and money to him. And in fact, the Philippians are sending help. They're sending uh, their representatives. They're sending money to him, to take care of him. And this letter is meant to respond to their concerns. And look at how Paul describes his condition and its influence on the spread of the gospel. Verse 12, Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, he says, I really want you to understand what's happening here. I know you're worried, but I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This has actually contributed to the advance of the gospel. What many thought was a problem, Paul considers to be an advantage to the gospel ministry. Now, in verse 16, Paul describes why he is in prison. He says, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. I am in prison so that the gospel can be defended and spread. Now, we can translate this phrase, I am put here, as I am destined to be here. I am appointed to be here. There's a strong sense of God's providence here, which is not unusual in Paul's writings. Paul doesn't believe that his imprisonment is accidental or that it is tragic. He sees his life as ordered by Christ so specifically, so precisely, that every circumstance serves to bring glory to God and advance God's purposes. This is Paul's view of life. This is not unusual 
for Paul to write like this, to feel like this. He sees his life as ordered by Christ himself. And that's why he's able to rejoice in very difficult circumstances. And so he's paying attention to how what God has done in his life, how Christ has ordered his circumstances, how it's actually helping to spread the gospel. And he gives a couple of illustrations here for the Philippians and for us. In verse 13, he says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul hasn't actually stopped sharing the gospel. And now he has a captive audience. He literally has a soldier chained to him. Every day, in shifts of maybe four hours or so, the soldiers come and are chained to him so he would not escape, and Paul speaks to them. Now, for an evangelist, this is a dream come true. This is like getting stuck on a on a ski lift with an unbeliever, you know, or being on an, on an airplane ride with an unbeliever and, and having that time to explain lovingly, yes, but to explain the truth of the gospel. So Paul is communicating the gospel to these imperial guards. This is an elite Roman regiment under the direct authority of, of the Caesar, of the emperor. These are guys that wouldn't probably come to church or a synagogue or hear Paul's preaching on the street, and yet here they're exposed to the gospel. And in fact, Paul says that it's not just the Roman guards, the imperial guard, but to all the rest is known now that, that his imprisonment is for Christ. This is very important that everybody knows now in the palace and in, in, in Rome in those circles, everybody knows that Paul is there in prison not because he's a thief or he's a murderer, he's a political prisoner, but because he preaches Christ. And so this, this information spreads. And because he's in Rome, he's around the imperial palace because his appeal is to Caesar, and eventually he will get a hearing before Caesar himself. Because he's working on his legal defense and he's communicating with different people in, the, in those circles, the gospel advances into the palace. Now look at how Paul finishes the letter in Philippians 4.22. So at the very end of the same letter, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So now there are believers in the royal household. Probably servants, probably staff of the palace. But now the gospel has taken, it has a foothold, has a has an influence in, in the very places of power in the Roman world. Some of the people in the imperial household became believers in Christ because Paul was imprisoned in Rome and his case dragged on. Now look at verse 14. What else has happened as a result of his imprisonment that advanced the gospel? In verse 14 he says, Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's persistent evangelism in chains encouraged other Christians in Rome to become fearless in their evangelism. Now that Paul is not preaching on the streets, other people are preaching on the streets. While Paul himself is not able to do his normal ministry, other people are doing that. And they're 
much more courageous than they used to be. They're much more fearless than they used to be. They're motivated by his suffering, by his contentment, by his joy, by his own evangelism. They're motivated to evangelize others themselves. Now, we know that from history, that uh, missionary biographies have done more to influence people towards missions than sermons and then presentations. It's about the example of someone else who's already doing that and doing it well that actually moves us. And so for many people, hearing about an imprisoned Christian, hearing about persecuted church, hearing about missionaries being, being murdered, that actually empowers us to become better evangelists. And so we spread the gospel wherever we are, sometimes go into other places, but certainly where we are, we are emboldened by that. Now, what Paul is describing here, this dynamic of, of a difficult circumstance contributing to the spread of the gospel, is not at all uncommon in the history of the church. Even the Philippian church, and I'm not sure if they're connecting the dots here themselves, but the church was started under difficult and yet Christ-ordained circumstances. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago from Acts 16, where we saw that the jailer, the Philippian jailer, and his household get converted because Paul and Silas are thrown in prison, and they're singing. They were beaten, and they're, they're in prison unjustly, and so they're praying and singing, spreading the gospel in jail. And so the jailer and his household believe, and they become part of the Philippian church. This is the birth of the church. What we often see as an obstacle is sometimes a path, a very specific path for the gospel's advance. Let me give you some examples. In 1675, John Bunyan, one of the most popular and effective preachers in England at that time, is put in jail for preaching the gospel. Very similar circumstances to Paul's imprisonment. John Owen, who was a, another leader of that time, and had a lot of influence in political circles, was trying to secure Bunyan's release from prison, thinking that Bunyan would be more effective preaching in his church, preaching on the streets. And yet he was unable to do that. And it seemed like an obstacle to the spread of the gospel, one of the best, most effective preachers being silent in prison. And yet, when Bunyan was, was finally released, this is years later, it's not a, not a short stint in prison here. When he's finally released, years later, he comes out with a manuscript of Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most influential books in the world. I'm not exaggerating. For many years, Pilgrim's Progress was the most commonly used and published and sold book after the Bible in the English-speaking world. So what seemed like an obstacle actually contributed to the production of a book that is responsible for countless conversions. This is a book that explained the gospel to many people. Many people were converted by reading John Bunyan's book. Martin Luther translated the New Testament into German while he was forced to stay at the Wartburg Castle, he was placed there by a sympathetic ruler to protect him from the Pope, protect him from 
from being arrested and put to death. And so Luther, probably frustrated that he's not able to be at his church, at his home, speaking to his people, he puts all his energy in translating the New Testament. That's where that story comes from, where, where Luther, arguing with the devil, throws his ink pot into the wall. And there's a, there's a spot, if you go to that place today, there's a spot there where he leaves that as a part of his agony, part of his, his fighting with the enemy. And yet, what is the result of that fight? The New Testament in German. And by the way, Luther's Bible is still used today in Germany. That still is the Bible that is used by German Christians today. Tremendous influence of that Bible. Western missionaries were expelled from China in 1949. If you are in missionary circles, people know that date. They remember that time. Many missions agencies uh, had to process what was happening in China when uh, the communist the communist regime took control of the country in 49. Christians, all Westerners, were simply expelled. And many at the time, and since then, were saying this is a, a tremendous hindrance to the spread of the gospel. What is going to happen to the church in China without the resources of the Western church, without the Western missionaries, who did a lot of good, by the way? But once they were expelled, the church in China actually continued to grow. And now, what we considered a major setback at the time turned out to be a great catalyst for the growth of the church in China. The numbers of believers in China today are mind-boggling for any missionary that hoped to achieve any level of success in the 40s. The church is thriving under persecution, in suffering, but the church is thriving in China. So many times these things have happened where what we thought was an obstacle, we were concerned that this particular leader is limited now, this particular ministry is not able to minister anymore, and yet through it, because Christ orders the circumstances, because it is He who ordains these things, through it the gospel actually advances. Now Paul looks at his circumstances and he accepts them as ordered by Christ. That is his mindset. This is his view of life. And if Christ is in charge of my circumstances, all that happens in my life, in our lives, is meant to advance his purposes. I wonder if that is your mindset. I don't think we can be content or joyful until this is our mindset until we acknowledge that it is Christ who orders and ordains our circumstances. Do you believe your life circumstances to be ordered by Christ, very personally, very intentionally, precisely, to achieve His purposes? Do you believe that every event in your life is meaningful, that it fits perfectly in God's plan, that it is purposeful, that you have been put here, as Paul says, I have been put here. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That you are destined to be here in these circumstances right now because Christ has ordered that. He's ordained that. Wherever you are, whatever you are dealing with right now, if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, 
the biblical worldview says that God has been involved in this, that he has placed you where you are to accomplish his purposes. Now think about the current crisis. Whatever you think the cause or causes of this pandemic are, whether you think we have handled it poorly or we have handled it well, as a Christian, you must also believe that Christ has ordered these events and that his plan for humanity, his plan for the church, his plan for his kingdom is being accomplished through this pandemic. We may not know today how the gospel will advance as a result of this crisis. Just like Bunyan certainly did not know the influence his book was going to have when he was in prison, writing the book. But this too, this crisis too serves to advance the gospel because our lives, including our suffering, have been ordered by Christ. Now secondly, not only is our life ordered by Christ, but it must be centered on Christ. There are Christians who believe in God's sovereignty. Uh, They believe that God is in control. That's what I mean by God's sovereignty. God is in control of every circumstances in our lives. But that belief, for some Christians, does not produce joy or contentment. In fact, it produces bitterness and resentment. There are Christians today who live in bitterness and anger toward God. They believe God has ordained this. They believe God has ordered the circumstances of their lives. They just don't like what He's doing. They know God is in charge, but they don't believe He should be doing what He is doing. Now, please listen to me. Whether you are bitter or content depends on whether we place ourselves or Christ at the center of our lives. Whether we are bitter or we are content depends on whether we place ourselves or Christ at the center of our lives. Now, Paul lived a Christ-centered life. What I mean is that his main concern was Jesus and not himself. He actually lived for Jesus. Later in verse 21 in the same chapter, Paul says, For me to live is Christ. We'll be looking at that next week. For me to live is Christ. He says that. And he lived it. In Galatians 2 verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So for Paul, his life is defined by Christ's purposes, by Christ's glory. He wants Christ to live through him. He wants Christ to be exalted, Christ to be glorified in whatever circumstances he finds himself. His concern is not for himself, but for Christ, and for himself only as it contributes to what Christ is doing. Now look at how it plays out in Paul's reaction to attacks on his reputation. Verses 15, 16, and 17. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy 
and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Many Christians were encouraged by Paul and preached the gospel without fear in support of Paul's ministry in unity with him. But some, it appears, took this opportunity to slander Paul and to try to gain prominence in the church. There was a leadership vacuum here. Paul's in prison. So other people stepped up. And envy and rivalry and selfish ambition played out. These things are not unusual among Christian leaders. While it's not unusual, we certainly shouldn't excuse it. And Paul doesn't approve of preaching out of envy or rivalry or selfish ambition. But he does approve of the gospel's advance, even if it hurts his reputation and his standing in the church. Now, you see, the right gospel was preached. These people are not preaching a different gospel. They're preaching the right gospel, the gospel that Paul preaches, the gospel that we find in the Bible, the good news of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and the grace to be reconciled with God. They're preaching all that. They're preaching correctly, but they're preaching out of mixed motives. They may be motivated to, to gain greater influence in the church, or they may be motivated to prove that they are a better preacher than Paul. They are a more important leader than Paul. And so they're slandering him. They are making his affliction even worse in prison. It hurts Paul in some ways, and yet he rejoices. Look at verse 18. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's concern was for Christ's reputation, Christ's glory, and not his own. Christ was at the center of his life. So as long as Christ was proclaimed, even though that meant that it hurt him, it hurt his reputation, but Christ's reputation was, was spreading, he was content. He was able to rejoice. I mean, I, I think this is remarkable, that he was able to put himself in the background and say, it doesn't really matter what people think of me. What matters is what people think of Christ. Now, I want to make two applications of, of, of this verse, of this point. One, let me just be very personal with you and share from my experience, okay? So this is maybe a couple minutes of therapy for me here, but maybe it applies to you as well. And then we'll do a general application that applies to, to everybody. Now, here's a personal application for me. For years, I have struggled with Paul's rejoicing of the gospel being preached by leaders with wrong motives. I had a really hard time accepting this verse. I just couldn't understand why Paul would be happy about preachers with bad motives, not preaching the gospel sincerely and doing things to, out of rivalry and, and envy and selfish ambition. I just couldn't understand why that would be a good thing, even if the gospel is being preached. And what changed for me is the moment when I applied this text not to some self-centered, ambitious, fame-hungry preachers out there, but to my own heart. 
At one point, I realized that I too, at times, have preached the gospel out of selfish ambition, out of envy, out of rivalry. Now, I fight those sins. I want my heart to be pure. But I have not always been successful. Have I said certain things to impress certain people? Even if those things were true? Yes, I have. Have I preached to exalt myself? Even by preaching Christ, through preaching Christ? Yes, I have. Have I cared too much about my reputation? Absolutely. Have I exhibited false humility? This is where it gets pretty personal for me. Have I exhibited false humility? Revealing just enough about my struggles to make you think I am humble, but really that serves to exalt me? Yeah, I've done that. I confess my mixed motives. I confess that I care too much about other leaders, other pastors' popularity and influence. So when I think about myself in light of these struggles, in light of these experiences, when I think about myself, not about others, but about myself, and I read verse 18, where Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, this verse becomes a tremendous encouragement to me. Even with all my mixed motives, my struggles with sincerity, my failures and my sins and my flaws, if Christ is proclaimed through my ministry, if He is proclaimed, we should rejoice. I should rejoice. I cannot tell you how helpful this passage is to me when I apply it to my own heart. Praise God that He does not depend on me to get everything right. On me to have my heart exactly where it should be. I find a lot of comfort now in a passage like this. And I understand a little bit better what Paul means. That even though, yes, many of us speak about Christ with mixed motives. But if we speak about Christ, if we speak about Him, who He is, and we give that message to others. Yes, not excuse in our own rivalry, in our own envy, in our own selfish ambition. No, we've got to deal with that. Of course we do. But even in the midst of that, somehow God takes that message and He uses that. And it becomes fruitful and people get converted. People grow. Now let me make a more general application. When something difficult happens in our lives... We sometimes ask, why me? Why me? God, why are you doing this to me? What do those questions reveal about the center of our lives? Who is at the center? Me, right? If when a difficult thing happens to me and my first question is, why me, Lord? What we're saying is, I'm at the center. My life is centered on me. 
I'm looking at my circumstances through the lens of how I feel, how I am inconvenienced, how my life is interrupted. But look at the question that Paul asks in verse 18. He asks, what then? What then? He says, even though I'm seeing them, my reputation is being hurt. I'm in prison. These guys are preaching out of mixed motives. What then? Well, if Christ is proclaimed through my circumstances, if Christ is exalted in my circumstances, if his purposes are being accomplished, what then? I will rejoice. Should I worry about my reputation, my comfort, my plans? Not really. I will rejoice in what is being accomplished for Christ's sake. I mean, this is, this is a very different look on life. It's not centered on me. It's centered on Christ. And if my life is Christ-centered, then when difficult things come my way, my question is not why me. My question is, what then? How is this going to contribute to the purposes of Christ through my life, through my suffering, through maybe even very difficult, inconvenient, disruptive things in my life? So instead of asking, why me, during a difficult time, ask, what then? Or how is this trial serving Christ's cause? And then you can find contentment and joy. Now finally, let's get to our last point. So we should accept that our lives are ordered by Christ, and we should center our lives on Christ. But we still have not answered one very important question. Why does God frequently put us in difficult circumstances to advance the gospel? Even if we accept that he is in charge, we still have this question of why is he doing it this way? Why is it that he is frequently using suffering in our lives to promote the gospel? Why does God put us in these kind of situations? Why does God put his church in the midst of a pandemic, disrupting our ministries, doing all these things, creating suffering for, for his people? Why does he do that? Is our suffering incidental? Just something that happens in this world. It's a broken world. It just, we just have to live with it. Or is it essential to God's purposes? Is it incidental, kind of a byproduct of sin? Or is it essential in that God has to use our suffering to have the gospel be advanced? Now, let me quote from John Piper, and I will agree with this quote, okay? John Piper says, More and more, I am persuaded from Scripture and from the history of missions that God's design for evangelization of the world and the consummation of his purposes includes the suffering of his ministers and missionaries. To put it more plainly and specifically, God designs that the suffering of his ministers and missionaries is one essential means in the joyful, triumphant spread of the gospel among all the peoples of the world. I, I think Piper is right that it's essential for God to use suffering missionaries, suffering ministers to proclaim the gospel to the world. I think, of course, it doesn't just apply to ministers and missionaries. It applies to every Christian. Every Christian's suffering, to whatever extent that suffering happens in your life, it is essential to the spread of the gospel. 
These circumstances are essential. Your pain is essential. Your suffering is essential. Your difficulties, your trials are essential for the gospel to spread. Why? The gospel is spread through suffering because it was born in suffering. The gospel spreads through suffering because it was born in suffering. What is the gospel? Jesus giving his life for us on the cross. Jesus entering our suffering and suffering with us and suffering for us, suffering for our sakes. Jesus hurting for us. That's the gospel. God sent his son to hurt for us, to suffer for us, and through that suffering to give us life. If that's true, if the gospel, the very message we proclaim, is the gospel born in Christ's suffering, is the gospel of the cross, then our communication of that gospel will also be marked by suffering. Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If we follow Jesus, we follow him in suffering. The call of the gospel is to take up our cross and follow him. Because he took up our cross and he followed us into our suffering. The gospel of the cross is spread by the people of the cross. Augustine said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. He had one son on earth without sin, that's Jesus, but never one without suffering. Even Jesus suffered. Specifically, that's why he came to suffer. Our suffering is then essential to the advance of the Gospels because our lives are patterned after Christ. The Christian life is a christ patterned life. We are to live as Christ lived. Our suffering is also redemptive. We suffer so that life is given to other people. Let me tell you about the conversion of Peter O'Brien, who is an influential Australian Bible scholar. I've used his commentaries many times. He grew up in an unbelieving home, but his mother was converted by the faithful witness of her neighbor. Over time, this neighbor, who was just an ordinary Christian, but who lived with a chronic illness and suffered pain every day, the witness of that lady, through her suffering, in the midst of her suffering, the fact that she didn't complain, the fact that she lived a a contented, uh, joyful life in the midst of her pain, that had a tremendous influence on O'Brien's mother, who eventually became a Christian herself. And then later, her son was converted too. Peter O'Brien then became a missionary to India and later taught the Bible in Australia and wrote some very good commentaries. How did the gospel advance to that family and through that family to others? It happened through the suffering of an ordinary Christian neighbor. Your run-of-the-mill 
suffering, chronic illness, difficult circumstances, trials in our lives, when that happens to us, God means to use that to advance the gospel into other lives. And the way we suffer is essential to the spread of the gospel. God uses wounded healers. He uses suffering servants because this is who our Lord is. And the message about Him, the message of the cross, comes through our crosses. Our joyful suffering is essential to the advance of the gospel. And Paul says in Colossians 1, 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul says, In my suffering I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. What he means is that it's not that he has to suffer to somehow complement or, or add to the sufferings of Christ so people would be saved. No. He's saying that as he is suffering, he is filling up what is lacking. The lack of understanding of Christ's suffering. The lack of experience of the cross for other people. So, in other words, his suffering, Paul's suffering, extends Christ's suffering, Christ's redemptive atoning suffering into other people's lives, into the church. Paul's suffering and our suffering is a conduit for understanding and accepting Christ's atonement. It is very important to notice that Paul is rejoicing that he is suffering for Christ's sake, and through it, the gospel is explained. The gospel is communicated with credibility and power. I already mentioned John Bunyan and his book Pilgrim's Progress, which he wrote in prison. George Whitfield, who himself was a tremendous preacher in the First Great Awakening, this is a, a generation or two later after Bunyan, he believed that the book of such power, Pilgrim's Progress, could only be written in prison, in suffering. This is what he said, Whitfield, what Whitfield said about Pilgrim's Progress. He says, it smells of the prison. It was written when the author was confined in Bedford jail. And ministers never write or preach so well as when under the cross. The spirit of Christ and of glory then rests on them. Do you see what Whitfield is saying? Is that for Bunyan to be as effective, for him to be as fruitful in his evangelism, to be, for him to be as powerful of a writer, he had to suffer. He had to be in jail so that his books would smell of the prison. This is how it is for all of us. It is God's design for the advance of his message and his kingdom to work through our suffering. Our joyful suffering advances the gospel. It is necessary. Christ uses people like us in various degrees of pain and, and confusion and suffering and struggle to proclaim with credibility and power His message of the cross. His power is evident in our weakness. Does it change your view of your own suffering? I, I hope it does. I hope it does. 
I hope that you take this message to heart and re-examine your life and see if your life is, in fact, ordered by Christ, whether you believe that it's the case, that your life has to be centered on Christ, that His reputation, His glory are more important than yours, and that your life is patterned after Christ, that what you're experiencing right now is actually essential to the spread of His gospel. I want to finish with appealing to those of you who are listening who are not believers. I'd like to address those who are not Christians, and maybe this is completely new to you, what I'm saying. Maybe this is something you've heard many, many times before. But I would like to call you very directly to conversion to Christ. I want to call you to a life with Christ. Your life now is not free from suffering. It's not. I don't need to make that case, especially during this season. The gospel, this message of Jesus that we proclaim, offers a life when suffering is meaningful. You're not going to be free from suffering, but your suffering is going to be meaningful. Your suffering is going to be fruitful. When a Christian suffers joyfully, it produces good things in the world. The gospel offers a life of suffering that can even be joyful. Will you connect your life today by faith with the life of Christ? Will you follow the one who suffered for you and now suffer for him? The world says, put yourself at the center and you will have a great life. I don't think our experience bears it out. I don't think it's working. Now listen to what Jesus says. This is very different. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever replaces themselves with Christ at the center of their lives and thus loses their lives to Christ for Christ's sake actually finds the real life. And we are all here, many, many, many of us all over the world, testifying to the truth of Christ's statement that it really is true. It does work that you will find your real life when you give your life to Christ. Let me pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful for these truths from your word. I am incredibly grateful that you ordain our lives, that I am not in control, that Nobody I know around me is in control, that it is you, that you are sovereign, that your providence is real, that you ordain every detail of my life, of our lives, to reflect Christ and pursue his purposes. I thank you for that. And I humble myself before you, as we all do, to accept whatever circumstances you give us. I'm also incredibly grateful that you have chosen to give your son so that he can come into our world, suffer, and become the center of our lives. That we can say that we have been crucified with Christ because he has been crucified for me, for us. So that now it is not I who live, but that we live in him, through him. That Christ lives through me. That he has become the center and the point of my life. 
And I am incredibly grateful that my suffering, my pain is not meaningless, that it's not useless, that it's not incidental, but that in your great wisdom, you use my pain to speak to others, to speak to the world that Christ has experienced pain for us and that in his pain we can find healing. Lord, I thank you that those who suffer and suffer joyfully are being used by you to extend your kingdom, to gain more glory for yourself, to bless your people. So I pray for us, those who are Christians, to embrace this way of looking at our lives, to embrace that our lives are Christ-ordered, Christ-centered, and Christ-patterned. And for those of us who are not believers, I pray that they will encounter Jesus, the one who suffered for them, who explains their suffering, who gives meaning to their suffering, and who promises final restoration. Lord, Holy Spirit, giver of life, do your work in our hearts and our lives and bring many to yourself so that the gospel can advance even in this season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.